everybody. How are you today? Awesome. Just so you know, the technical glitch was my fault this morning. I'm just start that out with that. I'm trying to move on, but I needed to confess. I'm not a tech guy. So anyway, um, but yeah. Hey, so normally I would come up here and I typically like to start out with, a, you know, a personal story or something to drive a point home, but I'm not going to do that today. I want instead to set up the world in which Jesus came into this morning. Because this week and next week, we're going to look at the accounts from Matthew and Luke of the, the birth of Jesus and all of the wonder and turmoil and, and grace. And I know those are a lot of like, wait, highs and lows words, but that's the world that Jesus entered into. And so I want to give you a, a very, very brief history lesson here for a moment before we jump in, because we're going to look at the story of Jesus' birth in Matthew this morning. For those of you that are friend, uh, Friends fans, and remember when Ross was dressed as the hom- holiday armadillo? It all starts with the Maccabees. Anybody remember that from Friends? Anyway, sorry. Okay. But it does, sort of. So, uh, in, in the Old Testament, when the, the people of God continuously don't do as he calls them to do, uh, their rebellion leads to exile. And the last territory is the territory of Judah. And the people in Judah are exiled to Babylon. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't end well because uh, basically there's a, a remnant of people that may have been left behind. But most, most of the people are taken to captivity in Babylon. Uh, and... Uh, the, the first temple is destroyed, and everything that the Jewish people at the time held near and dear uh, is, is gone, and there's this longing to get back, to get that stuff back and, and all this stuff. And so we think about, if, if you know history, if you think about the Babylonian exile, uh, we, we have the earmarked in our, in our heads. But the reality is, is that there were many other powers that came along. The Persians took over after the Babylonians, and then the Greeks came in. And eventually, you know, because of Alexander the Great, uh, the world became uh, overrun by the Greeks. And then a group called the Seleucids came in, and this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes came, and he started creating a whole headache for the Jewish people after they had come back to their land and tried to get resettled. And he began to persecute them. And these individuals named the Maccabees, they rose up and revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes and the Seleucids, and they won. They won in their uprising. And for close to 100 years, the Jewish people under the rule of the Maccabees were able to live uh, in, the, in the height, the pinnacle, at least at the time, of what they wanted as far as living out their Judaism. But there was a problem. There was this new upstart world power called the Romans. And they came in, and they 
ended the Maccabean dynasty. And they put a ruler over the Jewish people in the land of Israel over Judah called Herod. Have you ever heard of Herod before? He's known in history as Herod the Great, but we can call him Herod the Headcase or Herod the Terrible, really, because Herod was installed as the ruler, the king. And by the way, that word king is important when we start thinking about Jesus, who's called Christ, who's called Messiah. But Herod is installed as the king over the people, and he is so power-hungry that he even murders his own family members when he feels that they might, uh, you know, try to rise up against him and take his power. But the reason that he's known for being Herod the Great is because Herod also was the architect of many, many wonderful constructions at the time and in the location of Israel. One of them being the second temple. You see, the, the exiles that got to return from Babylonian captivity began to rebuild the temple and rebuild their way of life. But the greatness that was the second temple didn't become what it was in all of its awe-inspiring beauty until Herod commissioned uh, it to be constructed in a more glorified sense. And he had other places too, the, the uh, location of Masada and the Herodium, which I'll talk about in a little bit because it actually might play a part in the story. But Herod is installed and he does these great but yet terrible things and he wants to hold on to power. And then not only that, the Romans also uh, install uh, procurators, people that are meant to keep their thumb on the people. And the most famous one that we know, and he doesn't factor into this story, but just so you know, his name's Pontius Pilate. And he'll come into the story of Jesus at the crucifixion. But needless to say, what happens is the Romans come into this world and they dominate. And the dynasty that was is no more, and the people are yet again under the oppression of another ruling power. And they long to be freed. They long to be able to live in freedom and prosperity and honor to God without any overpowering oppression stopping them or getting in the way or muddying the waters of what it means to truly devote one's life to God. That is the tension, the unrest that Jesus enters into in the land of Israel in a city called Bethlehem. It's kind of sad, really, when you think about it because our world hasn't changed that much. We live in a world of unrest. In fact, if you've been following the news, there's unrest in that very land today. But as we'll see, it's not just unrest in the national sense that existed then and today. But when we look at the story of Mary and Joseph, they deal with the day-to-day unrest and the highs and lows of life 
in a similar vein that we deal with. And so that national, even global unrest that existed at the time also became very personal unrest for that couple in whose lives God intervened and brought the Savior into the world. And so it's important for us to get that story as we uh, get that history as we look at this story this morning because we all send Christmas cards and we have nativity sets. We have a, uh, I don't know who makes it, but this little uh, toy set, nativity set. Like, you can actually put all the characters on your thumbs if you want to. And it looks all cute, and there's the, the, the donkey and the camel, and there's baby Jesus there in the middle, and we've got magi, and, and it looks all nice and pristine and calm, and it's a silent night. But the world that Jesus entered into wasn't calm and quiet and silent. It was chaos. It was chaos. Which is funny because when you read the book of Genesis and you see God creating, he creates something out of nothing. But not only that, the, the Genesis account tells us that God, instead of creating a chaotic world, creates a world of order. And yet, because of human sin, the world becomes disordered. And we've grown accustomed to living in chaos. And it's pretty wild and profound and powerful that Jesus is going to come into a chaotic world to bring order, restoration, redemption, but not in the way people expected. And that is the beauty of the Christmas story that we're going to get into this morning. So I'm going to do a lot of reading and explaining, and I even show some pictures here. But I want us to experience the Christmas story in its context so that we can take the core of the meaning of this story and experience its wonder and God's grace anew this morning. Because it, it wasn't a nice Christmas card world that God came to save. It was our chaotic world. And it was their chaotic world. And that just makes it all the more awe-inspiring what God did and is doing. And when Jesus returns, we'll do for good. And so I want to start at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. And it reads as follows. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph... Before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God 
with us. When Joseph woke up, he did just as an angel from God commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he didn't have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. Joseph called him Jesus. I want to pause for just a moment because the translation we're looking at, uh, you know, tries to uh, tell us a story in, in common words, but sometimes common words for us can muddy the waters. So when it says that Joseph and, and Mary were engaged, uh, the better, more technical term is that they were betrothed, because it's not like engagement how we think about it today, where, you know, you get down on one knee, and she says yes, and then you got a few months or a year or whatever it is, and then you have a wedding and so on. Betrothal in this culture was contractual. It meant that the woman in this case was pledged to be married to the man, but the woman stayed under the roof and under the protection of her family until the final commitment, the wedding ceremony, occurred. And in addition to that, uh, they, the, the two betrothed people were not supposed to consummate the marriage until the wedding ceremony concluded. And so while this sounds normal to us, the issue is, is that betrothal was contractual, which meant it could not be broken unless a certificate of divorce was issued. Even though they didn't come together under one roof and the woman leave her family, and even though they didn't consummate the marriage, it was already binding at the point of betrothal. And so this becomes a difficult situation for Joseph. And yes, by the way, we're starting with Joseph because if you remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at the genealogy of Matthew, the landing spot for Matthew's genealogy and his focus was of Joseph coming from the lineage of David. And that is being refocused in on in this passage. And so even though when we get to Luke next week and we see the emphasis on Mary, the story here focuses on Joseph, his character, and his experience of dealing with the hardship of being betrothed to a woman who suddenly is found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Except when you read the story in narrative time, Joseph doesn't know the little secret about what's going on. So you can only imagine his bewilderment, his frustration, his fear, his disappointment to find that the woman that he is contractually obligated to marry is pregnant. But we're told something else about Joseph. Something really, really important. He's a righteous man. We're not only told that he's righteous, but we're shown that he is righteous. And the first way that we're shown that Joseph is righteous is that he is going to quietly end the betrothal with Mary. And the reason he's going to do this quietly is to not publicly shame her. Because for a woman in this world that was even accused of committing adultery, it would not end well. It would not go well. And yet, Joseph has determined that he is going to protect her status 
on a social level and quietly end their arrangement rather than doing it in the public way that he probably would have been in this world permitted to do. And yet God is aware of his plan. And so Joseph has it revealed to him by an angel of the Lord that Mary is pregnant because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is another way that we're not just told that Joseph is righteous, but shown that he is righteous. Because he trusts God, and he follows through and marries Mary. That's funny to say it that way. Anyway. And we're told at the end of this section that they do not consummate the marriage until after Jesus is born. And so, what we're told then, we skip ahead, and I want to read verse 1, and I want to show you something here. It says, in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. Now, I want to show you a couple pictures here. This first one's my wife. Sorry, I didn't tell you. That's this picture up there. This is the church of the nativity in Bethlehem. And this spot that uh, she's touching, because she's, she's smart. Some people kiss it. I can't imagine how many germs. And you just, you know. Anyway, uh, this is the spot tradition says that Jesus was born. The Church of the Nativity is in Bethlehem here. But I want you to see this next picture here. This is a, a random cave-dwelling area in Bethlehem. It's near the Church in the Nativity. And this is some of the crew that we got to be with back in 2018. And we read the story in Luke that we'll look at next week of Jesus being born. Because a lot of us, again, we have this Christmas card, this nice little place, and the, the warm glow of the fire and the animals around and everything. But the reality is, is that Jesus was more likely born in a dwelling like this that was made for animals. It was connected to homes. And so when it says next week, when we look and it says that there was no room for him at the inn. It's really that there was no room in the home dwelling place, so they had to find a space with the animals in a cave-like situation. And so Jesus was born in something like this in Bethlehem, in the home of Joseph. But Matthew conspicuously doesn't, he doesn't tell us this story. He jumps ahead. I don't know if you know this, Matthew assumes Jesus' birth, but he doesn't actually tell us about Jesus' birth, other than telling us that he was born in Bethlehem. He jumps forward to Jesus' toddler years. And so he just lets us know in Bethlehem that Jesus was born in the territory of Judea during the rule of King Herod. Now I want to show you one other picture from this verse. I, I told you I was going to tell you about uh, places that Herod built. There's another one. He, he built a place called the Herodium. It's this spiraled up dome-looking 
structure. It's kind of a hideout. He had, he had like hot tub stuff set up in here. He, very lavish king. He wanted to stay up high and keep himself in power. Uh, I will tell you that when we were there, <laughs> it was so windy that many of us felt like we were going to blow off of the Herodium. And the guy that actually discovered this place and did archaeology there for years ended up dying from falling from this place. So uh, we were told that story as we were battling winds that were trying to knock us off of the story. So now the reason I show you this picture is if you're at the top of the Herodium, this magnificent structure that Herod the Terrible built, if you look out over to the land, you can see Bethlehem from there. Herod, when he is visited by the Magi, may have been looking to the place where Jesus was born as he's hearing their story. And remember, Herod has been put in rule over the people of Judea. And Jesus, who is called Christ, who we're told in the first verse of the Gospel of Matthew, Christ meaning Messiah, anointed one, king, is born. And it's about to make Herod a little concerned and a little frantic as he might be perched up high here looking down on the location that Jesus in his toddler years is living. Why might he get upset? Well, let's keep reading. In verse 2 of Matthew chapter 2, it says, These magi that came from the east to Jerusalem asked, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born. And they said, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what the prophet wrote. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the rulers of Judah, because from you will come one who governs, who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time when the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me so that I too may go and honor him. When they heard the king, they went. And look, the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, falling to her knees. They honored, uh, they honored him. Or falling to their knees, they honored him. Then they opened their treasure chest and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. Now, the reason that we know that this isn't a story about baby Jesus, but probably toddler Jesus, was just actually really funny to think about. Because if it's toddler Jesus, he's probably not lying in the manger anymore, but maybe learning to walk. And these magi, by the way, bring some really expensive, nice gifts. And you can only imagine, like, did, did Jesus, I don't know, did he, like, did he get gold and just start, like, gnawing on it like a little toddler as he's stumbling around? And, you know, when they walked in the home, was Mary, you know, holding him up by the arms, trying to get him to learn to walk? 
I don't know. It's just a little bit of a different way of thinking about this. The reason we know that this is about the child Jesus and not the baby Jesus is because in the Greek text, the word here for child is not the word for baby that was used in the birth narratives. It's the term for child, a male child. And we also know when we see in just a moment what Herod does in his ruthless ways that he knows that this baby is no longer a baby but has been around for a bit. Now, these magi are important. Oftentimes, we call them the wise men, and there's always three. We think that there's only three of them because of the three gifts, but there's probably more than three or less than three. So anyway, I would just want to blow up your whole nativity set this morning. That's my whole goal. We call them wise men, but really, we should just call them magi. And, and, and who they are, maybe a, a blend of uh, you know astrologers, uh, people that dabble in all sorts of mystic things to try to denote the signs of the times and, and things like that. But they're also people that tend to show up. Uh, they, they can be known historically as kingmakers to a degree because they're constantly looking for signs that point to uh, the, the rising up of new powers and new kings. And no doubt Herod knows this when they visit. So he's got magi visiting him, and they're coming to look for the king, and Herod, being the way that he is, is probably thinking, uh, you found him. And they're like, no, not you. There's one that was born in Bethlehem, and we're just trying to follow the star because we think the star's going to lead us to him. And Herod doesn't like that, so he tries to play nice with the Magi. He says, in secret, why don't you come find, go, go find him and and when you, when you do, come back and report, because you know what? I'd like to go worship him too. But that's not how Herod the Great is. Remember, he's Herod the Terrible. So picking up at verse 13, it says, When the Magi had departed, an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod will soon search for the child in order to kill him. Joseph got up and during the night took the child and his mother to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod died. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I have called my son out of Egypt. And when Herod knew the, the Magi had fooled him, he grew very angry. He sent soldiers to kill all the children in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding territory who were two years old and younger, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. This fulfilled the words spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and much grieving, Rachel weeping for her children, and she did not want to be comforted because they were no more. Is this story familiar to you at all? Does this sound similar? Do you all remember when we were studying Exodus together, what happened at the beginning of that story with Moses? And the Egyptian pharaoh king decided to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. You remember that story? And then Moses was spared down the river. It's funny how God works. Jesus is in Bethlehem. He's under the watchful eye 
of the puppet King Herod. His adoptive dad, who, by the way, uh, takes on being the adoptive dad by giving him the name Jesus as God commanded him, is told first that he needs to remain with Mary and that he needs to give Jesus the name Jesus, which is actually Joshua, by the way, just so you know. In Hebrew, it would be Yeshua. In Greek, it's Jesus. Uh, but it, it means God saves. And not only does Joseph comply there, and after the Magi visit, Joseph is then warned about Herod's plot. And he is yet again proven to be righteous by listening to God and taking his son Jesus and Mary to Egypt to get out of Dodge. Because Herod is planning something terrible. He decides he's going to kill all of the males in the land to and under. And think the whole year too. And by the way, I'm going to bet based off of what we know about Herod that he wasn't too concerned about making sure that he could tell whether a kid was two or three or not. This was a bad guy. He was power hungry and he wanted to remain in power. Remember what I said. He even killed his own family members if he thought they'd be a threat to him. No doubt he's going to do that if he can with Jesus And so this horrible, horrible, catastrophic thing happens in the land. And there's weeping throughout. And the story picks up and closes here. In verse 19, it says, After King Herod died, an angel from the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said, and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Those who are trying to kill the child are dead. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus ruled over Judea in place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he went to the, he went to the area of Galilee. He settled in a city called Nazareth. So that there was spoken, so that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Here's a picture of the Church of the Annunciation uh, in Nazareth. Whoa, 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 where'd it go? Again, if there's any technical issues, it's my fault. I'm the one that put the pictures. So this is the Church of the Annunciation. Here's the reason I like to show you this up. A lot of tradition has been built up over top of the land. And so you go to these sites and you see these wonderful things and these, these memoriams to the stories that happen. And these are all these depictions of Mary. Uh, this is a Catholic church, the Church of the Annunciation. But then I want to show you this next picture. Here kind of underneath the church is the bedrock. More of the land and its rubble and ruin that existed at the time of Jesus. And, and here's why. If you go to Nazareth today, it's a kind of sprawling, valley-like city with tons of people living in close proximity to each other. Really, really great shawarma and baklava there, if you're into that sort of thing. 
But back at the time of Jesus, Nazareth was a small little town, very rural. In fact, there was a place that was Roman-occupied called Sephorus that was near this area, and some people believe that Joseph, being a tecton, we say carpenter, but a, a day laborer, probably did work in nearby Sephorus, but they lived in Nazareth, and Jesus, being the son of Joseph, adopted, of course, took on this trade, which is why Jesus is later called the carpenter's son. And yet Nazareth is the town that Jesus grows up in. Why? Well, if you didn't catch the story, we start out by learning about Joseph, who's said to be righteous. He's already deemed righteous by God by virtue of what Matthew testifies. But he's not only said to be righteous, he is shown to be righteous. He marries Mary. He gives Jesus the name that God commanded him to give. He listens to God and goes to Egypt when his son's life is in danger. He listens to God to go back to the land when the danger is gone. And then he, I don't know if you caught this, it says that he's fearful because the son of Herod the Great is now in power and he's yet again warned in a dream to settle somewhere in the land. Instead of going back to Bethlehem, where he would still be under that watchful eye of the son of Herod, he settles in Nazareth with the family. And Jesus grows up there. See, when we look at the Christmas story from the lens of Matthew, we learn about all the ways that God brought Jesus, the Son of God, into the world conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we're also told that Jesus, his name means God saves, but that others will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I love that name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because Joseph, the righteous man, who was put to task to be the earthly father of the Son of God, who had to live through the highs and lows. I'm wondering, is Mary's story true? Are we going to get out of Bethlehem in time before Herod's militant murderers come and get us? When we go back, will it be safe? And yet he trusts God the whole time. And the name Emmanuel that his son Jesus will be called, meaning God with us, is pertinent to this story. Because in Joseph's desire to be righteous, in his desire to be obedient to God, God is with him throughout the highs and the lows of the journey from Bethlehem to Egypt to Nazareth. And because God is with the family, Jesus, as we'll learn in Luke, will grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and people. And he will grow up and he will be baptized by John the Baptist. And he will call together a group of disciples 
And he will teach them about and usher in the kingdom. And he will teach people how to live in obedience to God. And he will show them what love looks like by performing miracles, acts of service to those both near his own people and even those who are far from God. And his life, his earthly life, will end on a cross. Thanks to the Romans that installed rulers in the land that he was born in. He will be sentenced to crucifixion by the procurator Pontius Pilate. But God will have the last word. And on the third day, the sun will be raised, conquering sin and death for all of time. All because a righteous man and his wife Mary, who gave birth to the Messiah, honored God in every step and acted in faith because God is with us. That is the story of Christmas. It's not just a photo on your card. It's not just a nativity set. It's the story of God with his people. God with his people who choose to desire to follow him in every way. To let us know that he is with us. And that even in our world of chaos, whether it's global whether it's national, whether it's personal, will remain with us and will make a way to him. I hope on your way in that you got a communion pack. We take communion each week because we remember that in the sacrifice Jesus made, God is with us. And so right now, I invite you, as you reflect on the Christmas story as it's told by Matthew, to not only reflect on how God was with Mary and Joseph and the child Jesus, but because he has made a way to him through Jesus, he is with us today. And that is worth celebrating. And after we've taken a moment to reflect, we will take communion together as one church family. I invite you to take this break.
bread and eat. This is his body, which is given for us. And I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is the blood which is poured out for us. Dear Lord God, there are many things that we could say in this season, in the hustle and the bustle, the chaos of our world and the chaos of our lives. But we just come to you and say one thing right now, God. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for remaining with us. Thank you for the promise and hope that we have that you are with us as we strive to follow you in each and every way and in each and every day. And we pray, God, that as we remember that you are with us, that you will help us to continue to walk in faith by the power of your Spirit. In the same way that Joseph and the family moved in faith, help us to do the same in the highs and lows of life. We pray these things in your Son Jesus' name. Amen.